you have a copy of the scriptures, let's look together this morning in the book of Philippians. This morning we're going to read verses, starting in verse 27 of chapter 1, and we'll read through verse 11 of chapter 2, so somewhat of a bigger chunk than normal. Philippians 1, starting verse 27, should be printed on the screen behind me if you don't happen to have a Bible. Hear this, get ready, this is God's word for you, it's God's word for me. We can bank the entirety of our lives on it. Whatever's going on in your mind and in your heart, try to receive this afresh and see how this can change everything in your life. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that, I, that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, this is indeed a very rich, weighty, meaningful text. You have given it to us so that we can have it and think about it. You've given it to us to show us our Savior and to teach us of your gospel. So we ask, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear what you say. Would you give us hearts to receive? Would you give us lives that are changed by your truth so that we might show how great and powerful you are so that just as this section ends with to the glory of God the Father, that our lives might be to your glory. 
because we realize that you are our Father. Help us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that we would not only hear your word, but that your word would prepare us to taste and to see that you are good. In Jesus' name, amen. As you can tell, we're going to be spending some time in this passage. Perhaps you didn't, couldn't tell that from the beginning, but I'll just go ahead and tell you in case you couldn't tell. This is a rich section in the scripture. We're going to be spending about three weeks from chapter 127 all the way through the end of chapter 2. Each week we're going to be looking at this section of verses because this entire section is anchored in the first 11 verses of chapter 2. So we're going to be spending time. And if you realize this morning that I don't cover everything in the verses that I read, just it's okay. We're going to get there eventually. Remember that the Apostle Paul has been giving us an introduction in the first 26 verses of chapter 1. You remember that he has been pressing on us that we need to remember over and over every day that God is at work and that relationships in our lives are central. We really, really need them. After communicating that to us in the first 11 verses, Paul then turns in verses 12 through 26 of chapter 1 to give an update on his life. He's writing to us from prison. He's writing to a church that he really, really loves. And he's communicating that to live is Christ and to die is gain. He's communicating to us that to live is Christ and to die is gain. And what we're going to find in the remainder of the book is really Paul trying to press that and knead that out and tease it out and show us what it means to live is Christ and to die is gain. So what that means is you can tell a transition happens in verse 27 and following because he turns to us. He begins to talk to the church. He begins to talk to us. And there's something very clear that he's communicating to us in the first verses, the very end of chapter 1, 27 through 30. That whole section, Paul is communicating to us one thing, and that is that the gospel makes demands on our lives. The gospel demands that we live in a certain way. Listen to the phrase of verse 27. Listen to it. Go back and read it. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Our lives are to show the gospel. Paul is not just interested in declaring the gospel. God is not interested in us hearing the gospel being declared to the apostle Paul only. God wants us to know that the gospel demands something from our lives. In essence, our lives are supposed to illustrate the gospel. It's not just that we're supposed to hear the gospel. It's not just that we're supposed to give our lives to the gospel in some intellectual sense. It's that our minds, our bodies, our wills, everything about our life is to illustrate the good news of what God has done by grace through Christ. What that means is that our lives must be lived graciously. What that means is that every, everything that you're going to endure this week, you must do it with grace, you must do it with mercy. That means that everything that I need to do this week I must approach with a gracious disposition, a disposition of mercy. 
That means that I am supposed to approach everything this week. You're supposed to approach everything this week in faith, with hope, and love. Everything. If the gospel is true in your life, your life must illustrate it. We must live by faith. We must live with hope. We must live by love. It means that our lives must show that we have joy. As Todd brought out last week, we have a joy that is not tied to circumstances. It means that God has given us a joy that is so deep that there is not a circumstance of our lives that can touch the source of our joy. It means that we must live a peaceable life this week. It means that we must live a self-controlled life this week, that we must say no to sin. It means that we must be kind and patient. Our lives are to illustrate the gospel. The gospel demands that we live a life that's worthy of the gospel. Now make no mistake, the reason why we're supposed to live a gracious life the reason why we're supposed to live a life of mercy, the reason why we're supposed to be full of joy and patience and hope and kindness, the reason why all that is true is because every morning, every morning when we wake up, we get to expect the mercy of God to be with us. You know that benediction thing that we do at the end of our worship service? Yeah, it applies every day, all day, all week, forever. Every day that you wake up, you are to expect the mercy of God in your life. Because you see, if it wasn't for the mercy of God, if it wasn't for His grace, if it wasn't for His mercy through Christ, we would be unable to be gracious and merciful and believe and love and hope. We would be unable to have kindness. We would be unable to have self-control. The gospel demands that our lives illustrate the gospel because God continues to be merciful to us. You see, in the mercy that God has for us every day, it's not that we deserve it. It's not that we deserve it. It's that we need it. It's that every day we wake up needing God to be merciful to us. We need his mercy in order to show mercy. We need his mercy in order to be gracious. We need his mercy in order to love. We need his mercy in order to have hope. We need his mercy in order to have joy. We need his mercy in order to be kind and self-controlled and patient and everything else. You see? Paul is pressing this home. Let your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. The gospel demands that our life shows the good news. Now what's fascinating is, is that Paul doesn't stop there with just proclaiming that in verse 27, does he? Look with me at the phrases that he uses after that. It's quite fascinating. Look at what he says. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent. Our lives are supposed to illustrate the gospel no matter who is around. That means... That if I'm not with you all week, you still should live like a Christian. Don't act one way if I'm here and one way if I'm not. That means that I ought to act the same way whether I'm in front of you or whether 
I'm not. You see, it goes both ways. Paul says our lives should illustrate the gospel no matter who is present, no matter who is absent. Then he goes on to say this, that I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. In other words, he's assuming there that there might be some tension or conflict or, or let's just say it generally, disagreement amongst the body. It means that your life is supposed to illustrate the gospel whether everybody agrees with you or whether they don't. Anybody anticipate being with someone this week that might disagree with you? Anybody anticipating being with someone this afternoon in approximately 40 minutes that might not agree with you? Yeah, it doesn't matter. Our lives are supposed to illustrate the gospel. How about this? Look at verse 28. That we are not to be frightened in anything by our opponents. We are to live the gospel out, not being afraid of anyone. We don't need to fear the face of man. We especially don't need to be afraid of those who are opposed to the message of grace. We don't need to be afraid of those who are opposed to God showing mercy. We don't need to be afraid. Beloved, if you are in the Lord Jesus Christ, you don't need to be afraid of anyone. It doesn't matter how opposed they are to the message of mercy and grace for sinners like us. In some ways, it's hard to believe that anybody would be opposed to someone like God showing mercy, right? Yet it's true. Paul says your life needs to show the gospel. Even if you're around those who do not love the message and do not love your God. They don't even love the message that you love. Show them the gospel. Even more, Paul says in 29 and 30, listen to the language of this. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. God grants that we will suffer It's a gift? Engage in verse 30 in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Paul says, even if you you have been granted suffering, even if you are engaged in conflict, our lives are supposed to illustrate the gospel. Now when you read that list and think about, wow, I'm supposed to illustrate the gospel no matter who's around? My life is supposed to show the message of good news, the good news that God has for us in Christ, whether I agree with everybody I'm around or not. My life is supposed to show the gospel even if I'm around someone who is really opposed to what I believe. I'm supposed to show the gospel even if I'm enduring suffering and hardship and conflict. You see, those are the very things that we think ought to be a reason why we don't have to show the gospel, right? Yes, I want to show the gospel unless I need to deal with somebody who doesn't agree with me. Yes, my life is supposed to illustrate the gospel unless there's a certain level of conflict and then I don't need to be merciful or gracious anymore, kind or patient or self-controlled. I can just let them have it. 
I know this is an inanimate object, but this morning I almost let this microphone have it. In 8.30 service, it quit right in the middle of my sermon. And there were people who were trying to help me, and I appreciate that. But what was going on in my mind is, I'm going to rip this thing off my head and throw it on the ground and stomp on it. I wasn't showing the gospel in my heart. I was just upset. I don't like this anyway. And it's an inanimate object. It hasn't done anything to me. might sound trivial, but that's our hearts, isn't it? We like to use this, that these, these descriptions here as, a, as an excuse to not illustrate the gospel. Going through hardship and suffering at times can be a tremendous temptation for us to not illustrate the truth that we live by mercy. Conflict and the rest, it's all there, isn't it? It's what we love to use. All those things are what we love to use an excuse, as an excuse to not live the gospel. And you see, Paul is reminding us that God himself demands the entirety of our lives. His gospel is so comprehensive. The good news of what Christ has done is so comprehensive that we are to live without qualification in light of his truth in light of what Christ has done and who Christ is for us. We are to show the gospel to people without qualification. No matter how hard, no matter how difficult, no matter if we're being attacked or if we're just a little bit of a disagreement or whether we're suffering, we need to show the gospel. You see, something is going on in the Philippian church. Paul writes this for a reason. He writes this to us for a reason. Something is going on in the Philippian church. He doesn't, he doesn't tell us exactly what it is. And remember, he loves this church, and this church loves him. But something is going on. It doesn't appear as if a split is about to happen in the church. It doesn't appear as if the church is just about to break apart and blow up everywhere. That doesn't seem what's going on. It doesn't seem like what's going on at all. Something is, is happening, though. Isn't there always the threat of conflict in every church? Isn't there always the threat of conflict in every marriage? Isn't there always the threat of conflict every day you go to your job? It's everywhere. You see, Paul doesn't tell us exactly what the conflict is, but what he seems to do is that he seems to address the why we have conflict, why we have the threat of conflict, why we have the potential for tremendous conflict all the time. We find that in verse 3 of chapter 2. See, Paul tells us not to do anything from rivalry, look at verse 3, or conceit. You see, he doesn't tell us exactly what the problem is at Philippi because it doesn't matter. There's always the potential for conflict every day. And so Paul says, well, let's get at the root of conflict and let's just lay it out there. He says in verse 3 of chapter 2, let nothing be done through rivalry or conceit, but in humility. You see, he's getting at the why we have conflict. And he tells us because of rivalry and conceit. You see, 
Because of sin, our hearts are typically on this setting, the setting that reads rivalry. That's where the dial is located, on rivalry. What that looks like in our lives is that we can't think about any real issue because no matter what happens, no matter what happens in our lives, all we can think about is this. How does this reflect on me? We can't think clearly about any issue because ultimately we make everything about me. What does this say about my reputation? How does this make me look? What will other people think of me if they knew that this was going on? All we can think about is me. We take everything personally and therefore we end up living defensively. So we're always charged for conflict. Every decision is ultimately about me. And you see, whenever we live our lives with the dial of our lives located on rivalry, what ends up happening, happening is, is that because of the rivalry, the rivalry blocks living with and from the truth. Because we can't look at anything or have any experience without thinking about it from me and my perspective and what I want and what this says about me and what this means about me and what others may think about me. And so the truth can't get in because we're set on rivalry. We're set on ourselves. This is what creates conflict, you see. This is why we struggle to live a life that is worthy of the gospel. And it's not just rivalry. He also adds conceit, doesn't he? And this is certainly related to rivalry, but it's just looking at it from another angle. He's adding depth. There's another dimension. Another translation that I like is vainglory. That's actually closer to what the original says here. You see, glory in the Bible is this idea of weightiness. And we all want our lives to weigh something. We want our lives to be substantive. We want our lives to be meaningful. We want our lives to be purposeful. And as hard as it is to admit that we're wrong, there's something that we might detest more than admitting we're wrong, although I know admitting that we're wrong is up there. Maybe what we detest more than admitting we're wrong is that we're irrelevant. Or that our lives don't seem to mean much. Maybe that's why some of our friends and loved ones try to live their lives as if there is no meaning or try to figure out how they can show that there is no ultimate meaning. When you have friends like that, it breaks your heart, doesn't it? You see, we want our lives to mean something. We don't want to be a shadow we don't want to be irrelevant. We don't want to be unimportant. And when we feel that our lives are not substantive enough, we start trying to find glory, weight, substance in everything and in anything else except God. It's not just that our dial is set on rivalry. It's that it also has this conceit part of it where we're trying to find glory from ourselves. And we're trying to get glory for ourselves. Conflict comes from there also, doesn't it? You see, if, you're always, if we're always trying to get glory and someone's trying to take my glory, oh, there's going to be conflict. 
If someone's trying to tell me that my life is meaningless, and if someone's trying to tell me that I don't matter and that I'm irrelevant, oh, there's, there's going to be words. You see, this is why. This is why in the world in which we live, this is why all of the superior athletes that we know and look up to and love This is why all the superior athletes have to learn how to make everyone else around them better. You see, the superior athlete, his dial is set on rivalry. His dial is set on conceit. And what he wants to show to the world is that he is the best. And what he wants to show to everyone else is that he can dominate everyone else. And he takes everything personally. Everything that the media says, everything that his opponents say, everything he takes personally. He can hardly receive instruction from the coach unless it is so individualized that it is making him feel as though his life is far more substantive and he has a very clear and simple path on how to get more glory. It's why all the athletes that we love have to figure out how they can make everyone around them better. Because until they can stop being so conceited and so focused on rivalry, they'll never get anywhere. This is the same thing that drives the self-employed person. That they have to get to the point where they realize they need to delegate and rely on other people. Rivalry and conceit are the same thing that exists in the business world. So that this is why the CEO must learn not to micromanage He can't do everything. She can't do everything. This is why the parent must learn to grow with their children. And to give them freedom and space. This is why the 12 to 19 year old needs to learn about consequences. This is why the 12 to 19 year old must not only learn about consequences, but must learn about direction and wisdom. And it's hard because their dial is set on rivalry and conceit, even though they don't always know it. This is why your pastor has to learn that he's not Jesus for you or for anyone. And isn't it also funny that we have this dial set on rivalry and conceit? Not only about serious things in life and not only about our jobs and what we do and how we live with each other, but also over trivial things. You ever notice how that dial being set on rivalry comes out everywhere? Even if you didn't see the movie Into the Woods, did you hear the song, one of the main songs to that movie about rivalry where the brothers sing? And the brother says, well, my agony is far worse than yours. (laughs) You know how we even, uh, the dial is set on rivalry even when we're going through a difficult time? And it's like, well, my situation is worse than yours is. If you grew up in a home where you had a brother or a sister, you know the whole sibling rivalry? You say, I grew up with a younger brother, and I don't remember any type of rivalry with him because I always dominated him. Still do. You see, it's everywhere. 
The rivalry and conceit is everywhere. And it's in the midst of that, the Apostle Paul says, well, consider Jesus. Look at verse 5 through 8. He says, have this mind. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In the midst that your life is supposed to show the gospel, in the midst of the difficulty of that because of rivalry and conceit, in the midst of that, have the mind of Christ, which you have by grace. You see, God gives this to us so that we can actually know what is going on in the mind of Christ when he came. Isn't that astounding to think about? He's not just wanting us to read this and say, wow, this is amazing, like you might look at an artifact in a museum. He's like, think about this. Let the mind of Christ affect you, change you, because you actually have this by grace. This is actually what the gospel brings to you and gives you. It doesn't just give you forgiveness. It gives you the ability to think and act like the Lord Jesus Christ. So he goes on to explain. See, Jesus, as it says here, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, yes, it's true. Jesus is the express essence of deity. He is the morphe of God. All of the essential characteristics, qualities, perfections of deity are found in Christ. He is the exact form of deity. He is God. All the prerogatives, purposes, and powers of God reside in Jesus. He is God. But although he was God, the text says he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held onto tightly or clutched tightly. But he emptied himself. Even though Jesus was God, even though he is completely divine, he didn't consider equality with God something that he was going to cling to tightly. As a matter of fact, he decided to empty himself. Some of your translations may have it this way. He decided to make himself nothing. Now let's be real clear about this. And I know this is deep and I know this is really theological. And that's okay. Theology is good. If this is over your head, that's fine. Come and talk to me about it. I'd love to go into more detail about this. There is hardly a, a richer section in all of the Bible to describe your Savior than what we're dealing with right here. Many scholars have thought that this was actually a Christ hymn that existed before the Apostle Paul wrote Philippians because it was the testimony of the church. You see, Paul is just taking from what the church already believed and putting it in. This is not some construction that came 200 years after the resurrection of Christ. Paul borrowed this from the church the church that was in existence prior to him writing this letter. Sorry about that rabbit trail. It says that Jesus emptied himself. Now let's be very clear about this. 
Jesus did not empty himself by eliminating his, his divinity. Whatever attributes are God's, infinity, infinitude, you cannot lop off infinitude like an arm. You can't amputate a divine part of the divine essence. You, just, you can't do it. You cannot lop off deity. Jesus didn't cease to be divine when he emptied himself. He didn't cease to be all that God is and all that deity is when he humbled himself. The text actually says that he empties himself. Notice the wording. He emptied himself by taking. He didn't empty himself by subtraction. He emptied himself by addition. He emptied himself not by eliminating. He emptied himself by addition, by adding, by taking on the form of a servant. You see, this is communicating to you something so profound that we will spend all eternity praising God for. This is showing you how God works. This is showing you how deity acts. You know what the living God of the Scripture does to show you that He's God and to show you that He's divine and to show you that He has all power? He comes. He humbles Himself. He takes on human form. He pursues. He loves. That's godlike. That's what the God of the Scripture does. He comes and he takes on and he humbles himself. Yes, the God of the universe that spoke everything into existence, that God humbles himself. Jesus took on the form of a servant, meaning that anyone who saw him observed that he was a real man. He was not only fully God, but he was also fully man. He didn't lose his deity when he came to earth. He kept his deity and he added to it. He added on humanity. He added on a servant. And being a servant, he was obedient. Even to the point of death. That's what the text says. Even death on a cross. God says, have this mind in you. Have this mentality. Act this way. If you desire to let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, then think about the gospel. And think about who Christ is and what he has done. You see, this is, this is God communicating to us to captivate our hearts afresh. We don't need to be ruled by rivalry. We don't need to be ruled by conceit. What we need to be ruled by is Christ and what Christ has done. Jesus' death on the cross was very personal. You see, it was for you. It was for me. And when that kind of love begins to sink into our hearts. What it does is it begins to push out rivalry and push out conceit. 
when the fact that the living God came and added human form and was obedient to the point of death, when that love, the love of the cross, begins to break into our lives, it absorbs all of our desire for rivalry and conceit. It absorbs and pushes out our desire for self-centeredness. It reminds us of what true love is. Selfless love. Christ gave up his reputation for me. Therefore, I must have a different mindset toward others. Therefore, I must live a different kind of life. Because Christ has done this for me. You see, verses 5 through 8 are showing you and showing me in point-by-point detail, point-by-point detail of how Jesus himself conquers us. When we look at our own lives, we don't want death, do we? As a matter of fact, we actually try to live our lives avoiding death and ignoring death. Not only physical death, but we avoid dying to our plans and our power every day. We don't want anything to do with that. We want God to bless our plans, and we want God to give us more power so that we can serve ourselves more effectively. It's not just that we don't want death, it's that we are doing everything we can to avoid it. As a matter of fact, we don't even want a cross, do we? We prefer a throne. And we wish someone would give us a crown. Even more than that, we certainly don't want to empty ourselves. We don't even want to think about humility. The fact that God made us in his likeness isn't enough either. Being made in the likeness of God isn't enough. We want to be God. Jesus was God, but he didn't consider equality with God something that he wanted to clutch onto tightly, so he emptied himself and took on the form of a servant, and he became obedient to the point of death, even a death on the cross for you and for me. It brings us right to the table because it's here that we actually get to remember not just in our minds we get to taste and see our remembrance if you will we get to remember what Christ has done for us in a very very tangible way God's gospel to us the good news of salvation is not just for our hearing he actually desires that it applies and reaches all of our senses. Now you might realize we have things set up a little bit differently today. Surprise! We're going to do something different today. And so we're probably going to mess up a little bit, and it's going to be okay, all right? So let me just set your minds at ease. We're going to try something new. I'll explain that to you after we think a little bit more intently about this table. In the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he was gathered with his disciples. 
And the Gospel of Luke makes this stronger than anything I've ever read. Jesus said, with fervent desire, I fervently want to eat this meal with you. That's Jesus' mentality as we come to the table. He wants to eat this meal with us. On the night in which he was betrayed, and with all of his fervent desire to have this meal with his disciples, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this bread represents my body, which is broken for you. Take and eat it. Be reminded that my body was broken for you. You can imagine what that would have meant to the disciples who have been practicing the Passover for a long, long time. Jesus is saying, you don't need to sacrifice the lamb anymore. I'm the Passover lamb. In the same way, after he took the bread, he also gave thanks and he took the cup and he says, this cup represents my blood which is shed for you. You remember the lamb that you had to sacrifice? You remember how you used to take the blood and put it on the doorpost of your house? Yeah, well, my blood has been shed once and for all. No more blood needs to be shed other than the blood that I will shed. Therefore, take and drink this. And know that this represents the eternal covenant in my blood. That as the Bible says that without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sins, my blood has been shed and your sins are forgiven. Beloved, we come to the table because we need to feed on Christ. We need to take of his body as it's represented in the bread and not just take off a hunk, but take it in and eat it and chew it and be thankful. And we don't just need to look at the cup. We need to take the cup and drink it and remember his blood was shed for me, for me, so that now I can live a life that shows that I'm dependent on his mercy every day to illustrate the gospel that has loved me. Because the gospel is Jesus. As you think about the table today, remember that you need to examine yourself. It's very simple. If you're willing to admit that your heart is often set on rivalry and conceit, and you don't want that to change, this table isn't for you. But if you know that your heart is often set on that, on that setting of rivalry and conceit, and that you need Jesus to expose that and get rid of that and continue to work on that in your life forever, oh, this table is for you. You need it because you will not change that setting by yourself. You can't will it to happen. Jesus must do it. And he does it by remembering that he's died for you. So if you don't know Christ, please don't take. Just sit there and think. Think about who Christ is for you. But if you know the Lord Jesus, you need to come and partake. So here's what we're going to do. This is where things are going to get messy. We're actually going to show that we're a family. We might step on each other and bump people out of the way. And you, hopefully you won't fight for bread. That would be a problem. But what we want to do is come forward to take. So here's what we're going to try. 
Those of you that are in the middle sections, here's what I want you to do. I want you to come down the middle aisle. There should be two guys standing on either side of the table, bread and cup. Come down the middle aisle, take bread and take the cup. Eat and drink as you come, all right? And then walk back on the outside of your aisle and go back to your seats. Those of you on the outside, there will be two guys at this table. One of them will have bread and the other will have the cup. Please come out this way and walk down, drink and eat, and then walk along the wall back to your seat. Same thing on this side. Does that make sense? Come out this way, take and eat the bread and the cup, and walk along the wall back to your seat. Elders, I'll ask you if you'll come forward and help. I'm going to pray. And you need to stand there and give bread and the cup. And after all of the congregation is taken, then we as elders will take and eat. 